Section 40 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 19. Persia and the Tabriz Caravan Trail, Part 2. The Khan consumes not less than a pint of raw arak during the dinner hour, and not unnaturally finds himself at the end a trifle funny and venturesome. When preparing to take my departure, he proposes that I give him a ride on the bicycle. Nothing loath to humour him a little in return for his hospitality, I assist him to mount and wheel him around for a few minutes to the unconcealed delight of the whole population, who gather about to see the astonishing spectacle of their Khan riding on the Ferengi's wonderful Aspi Ahuan. The Khan, being short and pudgy, is unable to reach the pedals, and the confidence-inspiring fumes of Arak lead him to announce to the assembled villagers that if his legs were only a little longer he could certainly go it alone a statement that evidently fills the simple-minded Riots with admiration for the Khan's allegedly new-discovered abilities. The road continues level, but somewhat loose and sandy. The scenery around becomes strikingly beautiful, calling up thoughts of Arabian Nights entertainments, and the genie and troubadours of Persian song. The bright, blue waters of Lake Urumia stretch away southward to where the dim outlines of mountains a hundred miles away mark the southern shore. Rocky islets at a lesser distance, and consequently more pronounced in character and contour, rear their jagged and picturesque forms sheer from the azure surface of the liquid mirror the face of which is unruffled by a single ripple and unspecked by a single animate or inanimate object. The beach is thickly encrusted with salt, white and glistening in the sunshine. The shoreland is mingled sand and clay of a deep red colour, thus presenting the striking and beautiful phenomena of a lake shore painted red, white and blue by the inimitable hand of nature. A range of rugged grey mountains run parallel with the shore, but a few miles away crystal streams come bubbling lakeward over pebble-bedded channels from sources high up the mountain slopes. Villages, hidden amid groves of spreading jujubes and graceful chenars, nestle here and there in the rocky gateways of ravines. Orchards and vineyards are scattered about the plain. They are imprisoned within gloomy mud walls, but like living creatures struggling for their liberty, the fruit-laden branches extend beyond their prison walls, and the graceful tendrils of the vines find their way through the sun-cracks and fissures of decay, and trail over the top as though trying to cover with nature's charitable veil the unsightly works of man and all is arched over with the cloudless Persian sky. 
beaming the roads of this picturesque region in search of victims, is a most persistent and pugnacious species of fly. Rollicking as the bluebottle and the veritable double of the greenhead horsefly of the western prairies, he combines the dash and impetuosity of the one with the ferocity and persistence of the other. But he is happily possessed of one redeeming feature not possessed by either of the above-mentioned and well-known insects of the western world. When either of these settles himself affectionately on the end of a person's nose, and the person, smarting under the indignity, hits himself viciously on that helpless and unoffending portion of his person. As a general thing, it doesn't hurt the fly, simply because the fly doesn't wait long enough to be hurt. But the Lake Urumia fly is a comparatively guileless insect, and quietly remains where he alights until it suits one's convenience to forcibly remove him. For this redeeming quality I bespeak for him the warmest encomiums of fly-harassed humans everywhere. Dusk is settling down over the broad expanse of lake, plain, and mountain, when I encounter a number of villagers taking donkey-loads of fruit and almonds from an orchard to their village. They cordially invite me to accompany them and accept their hospitality for the night. They are travelling toward a large area of walled orchards, but a short distance to the north, and I naturally expect to find their village located among them. So not knowing how far ahead the next village may be, I gladly accept their kindly invitation and follow along behind. It gets dusky, then duskier, then dark. The stars come peeping out thicker and thicker, and still I am trundling with these people slowly along up the dry and stone-strewn channel of springtime freshets, expecting every minute to reach their village, only to be as often disappointed for over an hour, during which we travel out of my proper course perhaps four miles. Finally, after crossing several little streams, or rather one stream several times, we arrive at our destination and I am installed as the guest of a leading villager, behind a sort of open porch attached to the house. Here, as usual, I quickly become the centre of attraction for a wandering and admiring audience of half-naked villagers. The villager whose guest I become brings forth bread and cheese. Some bring me grapes, others newly gathered almonds, and then they squat around in the dim religious light of primitive grease lamps and watch me feed, with the same wondering interest and the same unconcealed delight with which youthful Londoners at the zoological gardens regard a pet monkey devouring their offerings of nuts and ginger snaps. I scarcely know what to make of these particular villagers. They seem strangely childlike and unsophisticated, and moreover perfectly delighted at my unexpected presence in their midst. It is doubtful whether their unimportant little village among the foothills was ever before visited by a Ferengi. 
Consequently, I am to them a rara avis to be petted and admired. I am inclined to think them a village of Yazids, or devil-worshippers. The Yazids believe that Allah, being by nature kind and merciful, would not injure anybody under any circumstances. Consequently, there is nothing to be gained by worshipping him. Shaitan, Satan, on the contrary, has both the power and the inclination to do people harm. Therefore they think it politic to cultivate his good will and to pursue a policy of conciliation toward him by worshipping him and revering his name. Thus they treat the name of Satan with even greater reverence than Christians and Mohammedans treat the name of God. Independent of their hospitable treatment of myself, these villagers seem but little advanced in their personal habits above mere animals. The women are half-naked, and seem possessed of little more sense of shame than our original ancestors before the fall. There is great talk of Kardash among them in reference to myself. They are advocating hospitality of a nature altogether too profound for the consideration of a modest and discriminating Ferengi. Hospitable intentions that I deem it advisable to dissipate at once by affecting deep, dense ignorance of what they are discussing. In the morning they search the village over to find the wherewithal to prepare me some tea before my departure. Eight miles from the village I discover that four miles forward yesterday evening, instead of backward, would have brought me to a village containing a caravanserai. I naturally feel a trifle chagrined at the mistake of having journeyed eight unnecessary miles, but am perhaps amply repaid by learning something of the utter simplicity of the villagers before their character becomes influenced by intercourse with more enlightened people. My course now leads over a stony plain. The wheeling is reasonably good, and I gradually draw away from the shores of Lake Urumia. Melon gardens and vineyards are frequently found here and there across the plain. The only entrance to the garden is a hole about three feet by four in the high mud wall, and this is closed by a wooden door. An armhole is generally found in the wall to enable the owner to reach the fastening from the outside. Investigating one of these fastenings at a certain vineyard, I discover a lock so primitive that it must have been invented by prehistoric man. A flat wooden bar or bolt is drawn into a mortise-like receptacle of the wall, open at the top. The man then daubs a handful of wet clay over it. In a few minutes the clay hardens and the door is fast. This is not a burglar-proof lock, certainly, and is only depended upon for a fastening during the temporary absence of the owner in the daytime. During the summer the owner and family not infrequently live in the garden altogether. During the forenoon the bicycle is the innocent cause of two people being thrown from the backs of their respective steeds. One is a man carelessly sitting sidewise on his donkey. The meek-eyed jackass suddenly makes a pivot of his hind feet 
and wheels round, and the rider's legs as suddenly shoot upward. He frantically grips his fiery, untamed steed around the neck as he finds himself overbalanced, and comes up with a broad grin and an irrepressible chuckle of merriment over the unwonted spirit displayed by his meek and humble charger, that probably had never scared at anything before in all its life. The other case is unfortunately a lady whose horse literally springs from beneath her, treating her to a clean tumble. The poor lady sings out, Allah, rather snappishly at finding herself on the ground, so snappishly that it leaves little room for doubt of its being an imprecation, but her rude, unsympathetic attendants laugh right merrily at seeing her floundering about in the sand. Fortunately, she is uninjured. Although Turkish and Persian ladies ride a la Amazon, a position that is popularly supposed to be several times more secure than side-saddles, it is a noticeable fact that they seem perfectly helpless and come to grief the moment their steed shies at anything or commences capering about with anything like violence. On a portion of road that is unridable from sand, I am captured by a rowdyish company of donkey-drivers, returning with empty fruit-baskets from Tabriz. They will not be convinced that the road is unsuitable, and absolutely refuse to let me go without seeing the bicycle ridden. After detaining me until patience on my part ceases to be a virtue, and apparently as determined for their purpose as ever, I am finally compelled to produce the convincing argument with five chambers and rifled barrel. These crowds of donkeymen seem inclined to be rather lawless, and scarcely a day passes lately but what this same eloquent argument has to be advanced in the interest of individual liberty. Fortunately, the mere sight of a revolver in the hands of a Ferengi has the magical effect of transforming the roughest and most overbearing gang of riots into peaceful retiring citizens. The plain I am now traversing is a broad, grey-looking area surrounded by mountains, and stretching away eastward from Lake Urumia for seventy-five miles. It presents the same peculiar aspect of Persian scenery, nearly everywhere, a general verdureless and unproductive country, with the barren surface here and there relieved by small oases of cultivated fields and orchards, the villages being built solely of mud, and consequently of the same colour as the general surface, are undistinguishable from a distance unless rendered conspicuous by trees. Labouring under a slightly mistaken impression concerning the distance to Tabriz, I push ahead in the expectation of reaching there to-night. The plain becomes generally more cultivated, the caravan routes from different directions come to a focus on broad trails leading into the largest city in Persia, and which is the great centre of distribution for European goods arriving by caravan to Trebizond. Coming to a large, scattering village some time in the afternoon, I trundle leisurely through the lanes enclosed between lofty and unsightly mud walls, thinking I have reached the suburbs of Tabriz. 
finding my mistake upon emerging on the open plain again, I am yet again deceived by another spreading village, and about six o'clock find myself wheeling eastward across an uncultivated stretch of uncertain dimensions. The broad caravan trail is worn by the traffic of centuries considerably below the level of the general surface, and consists of a number of narrow parallel trails along which swarms of donkeys laden with produce from tributary villages daily plod, besides the mule and camel caravans from a greater distance. These narrow beaten paths afford excellent wheeling, and I bowl along quite briskly. As one approaches Tabriz, the country is found traversed by an intricate network of irrigating ditches, some of them works of considerable magnitude. The embankments on either side of the road are frequently high enough to obscure a horseman. These works are almost as old as the hills themselves, for the cultivation of the Tabriz plain has remained practically an unchanged system for three thousand years, as though, like the ancient laws of the Medes and Persians, it also were made unchangeable. About dusk I fall in with another riotous crowd of homeward-bound fruit-carriers, who, not satisfied at seeing me ride past, want to stop me. One of them rushes up behind, grabs my package attached to the rear baggage-carrier, and nearly causes an overthrow. Frightening him off, I spurt ahead, barely escaping two or three donkey cudgels hurled at me in pure wantonness, born of the courage inspired by a majority of twenty to one. There is no remedy for these unpleasant occurrences, except travelling under escort, and the avoiding serious trouble or accident becomes a matter for everyday congratulation. At eighteen miles from the last village, it becomes too dark to remain in the saddle without danger of headers, and a short trundle brings me, not to Tabriz even now, but to another village eight miles nearer. Here there is a large caravanserai. Near the entrance is a hole in the wall, sort of a shop, wherein I espy a man, presiding over a tempting assortment of cantaloupes, grapes, and pears. The whirligig of fortune has favoured me to-day with tea, blotting-paper ekmek, and grapes for breakfast, later on two small watermelons, and at two p.m. blotting-paper ekmek and an infinitesimal quantity of yart, now called mast. It is unnecessary to add that I arrive in this village with an appetite that will countenance no unnecessary delay. Two splendid ripe cantaloupes, Several fine bunches of grapes and some pears are devoured immediately, with a reckless disregard of consequences, justifiable only on the grounds of semi-starvation and a temporary barbarism born of surrounding circumstances. After this savage attack on the Mevaji's stock, I learn that the village contains a small chai khan. Repairing thither, I stretch myself on the divan for an hour's repose, and afterward partake of tea, bread, and peaches. At bedtime the kanji makes me up a couch on the divan, 
locks the door inside, blows out the light, and then, afraid to occupy the same building with such a dangerous-looking individual as myself, climbs to the roof through a hole in the wall. Eager villagers carry both myself and wheel across a bridgeless stream upon resuming my journey to Tabriz next morning, though a trifle deep with dust and sand, and in an hour I am threading the suburban lanes of the city. Along these eight miles I certainly pass not less than five hundred pack-donkeys en route to the Tabriz market with everything, from baskets of the choicest fruit in the world to huge bundles of prickly camel-thorn, and sacks of tezek for fuel. No animals in all the world, I should think, stand in more need of the kindly offices of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals than the thousands of miserable donkeys engaged in supplying Tabriz with fuel. Their brutal drivers seem utterly callous and indifferent to the pitiful sufferings of these patient toilers. Numbers of instances are observed this morning where the rough, ill-fitting breech-straps and ropes have literally seesawed their way through the skin and deep into the flesh, and are still rasping deeper and deeper every day, no attempt whatever being made to remedy this evil. On the contrary, their pitiless drivers urge them on by prodding the raw sores with sharpened sticks and by belabouring them unceasingly with an instrument of torture in the shape of whips with six inches of ordinary trace-chain for a lash. As if the noble army of Persian donkey-drivers were not satisfied with the refinement of physical cruelty to which they have attained, they add insult to injury by talking constantly to their donkeys while driving them along, and accusing them of all the crimes in the calendar and of every kind of disreputable action. Fancy the bitter sense of humiliation that must overcome the proud, haughty spirit of a mouse-coloured jackass at being prodded in an open wound with a sharp stick, and hearing himself at the same time thus insultingly addressed, O thou son of a burnt father and murderer of thine own mother! Would that I myself had died rather than my father should have lived to see me drive such a brute as thou art. Yet this sort of talk is habitually indulged in by the barbarous drivers. While young, the donkey's nostrils are slit open clear up to the bridge-bone. This is popularly supposed among the Persians to be an improvement upon nature, in that it gives them greater freedom of respiration instead of the well-known clucking sound used among ourselves as a persuasive, the Persian makes a sound not unlike the bleating of a sheep. A stranger, being within hearing and out of sight of a gang of donkey-drivers in a hurry to reach their destination, would be more likely to imagine himself in the vicinity of a flock of sheep than anything else. As is usually the case, a volunteer guide bobs serenely up immediately I enter the city, and I follow confidently along, thinking he is piloting me to the English consulate, as I have requested. Instead of this, he steers me into the custom-house, and turns me over to the officials. These worthy gentlemen, after asking me to ride around the custom-house yard, pretend to become altogether mystified about what they ought to do with the bicycle.
and in the absence of any precedent to govern themselves by, finally conclude among themselves that the proper thing would be to confiscate it. Obtaining a guide to show me to the residence of Mr. Abbott, the English Consul-General, that energetic representative of Her Majesty's government smiles audibly at the thoughts of their mystification, and then writes them a letter couched in terms of humorous reproachfulness, asking them what in the name of Allah and the Prophet they mean by confiscating a traveller's horse, his carriage, his camel, his everything on legs and wheels consolidated into the beautiful vehicle with which he is journeying to Tehran to see the Shah, and all around the world to see everybody and everything, ending by telling them that he never in all his consular experiences heard of a proceeding so utterly atrocious. He sends the letter by the consulate dragoman, who accompanies me back to the custom-house. The officers at once see and acknowledge their mistake, but meanwhile they have been examining the bicycle, and some of them appear to have fallen violently in love with it. They yield it up, but it is with apparent reluctance, and one of the leading officials takes me into the stable, and showing me several splendid horses, begs me to take my choice from among them and leave the bicycle behind. Mr. and Mrs. Abbott cordially invite me to become their guest while staying at Tabriz. Today is Thursday, and although my original purpose was only to remain here a couple of days, the innovation from roughing it on the road, to roast duck for dinner, and breakfast in one's own room of a morning, coupled with warnings against travelling on the Sabbath and invitations to dinner from the American missionaries, proves a sufficient inducement for me to conclude to stay till Monday, satisfied at the prospect of reaching Tehran in good season. It is now something less than four hundred miles to Tehran, with the assurance of better roads than I have yet had in Persia, for the greater portion of the distance. Besides this, the route is now a regular post-route with Shaparkhanas, post-houses, at distances of four to five farsaks apart. On Friday night Tabriz experienced two slight shocks of an earthquake, and in the morning Mr. Abbott points out several fissures in the masonry of the consulate, caused by previous visitations of the same undesirable nature. The earthquakes here seem to resemble the earthquakes of California, in that they come reasonably mild and often. The place likewise awakens memories of the Golden State in another and more appreciative particular. Nowhere, save perhaps in California, does one find such delicious grapes, peaches and pears as at ancient Taurus, a speciality for which it has been justly celebrated from time immemorial. On Saturday I take dinner with Mr. Oldfather, one of the missionaries, and in the evening we all pay a visit to Mr. Whipple and family. The consulate link-boy lighting the way before us with a huge cylindrical lantern of transparent oiled muslin, called a farnooze. These lanterns are always carried after night before people of wealth or social consequence, varying in size according to the person's idea of their own social importance. 
the size of the farnoos is supposed to be an index of the social position of the person or family so that one can judge something of what sort of people are coming down the street even on the darkest night whenever the attendant link boy heaves in sight with the farnoos some of these social indicators are the size of a portland cement barrel even in persia it is rather a smile-provoking thought to think what tremendous farnooses would be seen lighting up the streets on gloomy evenings were this same custom prevalent among ourselves few of us but what could call to memory people whose farnooses would be little smaller than brewery mash-tubs and which would have to be carried between six-foot link-boys on a pole amir ay nazan the valiat or heir apparent to the throne and at present nominal governor of tabriz has seen a tricycle in tehran one having been imported some time ago by an english gentleman in the shah's service but the fame of the bicycle excites his curiosity and he sends an officer round to the consulate to examine and report upon the difference between bicycle and tricycle and also to discover and explain the modus operandi of maintaining one's balance on two wheels the officer returns with the report that my machine won't even stand up without somebody holding it and that nobody but a ferengi who is in league with shaitan could possibly hope to ride it perhaps it is this alarming report and the fear of exciting the prejudices of the mullahs and fanatics about him by having anything to do with a person reported on trustworthy authority to be in league with his satanic majesty that prevents the prince from requesting me to ride before him in tabriz but i have the pleasure of meeting him at haji aga on the evening of the first day out mr whipple kindly makes out an itinerary of the villages and chaparkanas i shall pass on the journey to tehran the superintendent of the Tabriz station of the Indo-European Telegraph Company voluntarily telegraphs to the agents at Mayana and Zenjan when to expect me, and also to Tehran. Mrs. Abbott fills my coat pockets with roast chicken, and thus equipped and prepared, at nine o'clock on Monday morning I am ready for the home stretch of the season, before going into winter quarters. The Turkish consul-general a corpulent gentleman whose avoir du poids i mentally jot down at four hundred pounds comes around with several others to see me take a farewell spin on the bricked pavements of the consulate garden like all persons of four hundred pounds weight the effendi is a good-natured jocose individual and causes no end of merriment by pretending to be anxious to take a spin on the bicycle himself whereas it requires no inconsiderable exertion on his part to waddle from his own residence hard by into the consulate three soldiers are detailed from the consulate staff to escort me through the city en route through the streets the pressure of the rabble forces one unlucky individual into one of the dangerous narrow holes that abound in the streets up to his neck the crowd yell with delight at seeing him tumble in and nobody stops to render him any assistance or to ascertain whether he is seriously hurt 
soon a poor old riot on a donkey happens amid the confusion to cross immediately in front of the bicycle whack 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 come the ready staves of the zealous and vigilant soldiers across the shoulders of the offender the crowd howls with renewed delight at this and several hilarious hobbledehoys endeavour to shove one of their companions in the place vacated by the belaboured riot in the hope that he likewise will come in for the visitation of the soldiers o'erwilling staves the broad suburban road where the people have been fondly expecting to see the bicycle light out in earnest for tehran at a marvellous rate of speed is found to be nothing less than a bed of loose sand and stones churned up by the narrow hoofs of multitudinous donkeys quite a number of better-class persians accompany me some distance further on horseback when taking their departure a gentleman on a splendid arab charger shakes hands and says good-bye my dear which apparently is all the english he knows he has evidently kept his eyes and ears open when happening about the english consulate and the happy thought striking him at the moment he repeats parrot-like this term of endearment all unsuspicious of the ridiculousness of its application in the present case for several miles the road winds tortuously over a range of low stony hills the surface being generally loose and unridable the water supply of tabriz is conducted from these hills by an ancient system of canats or underground water ditches occasionally one comes to a sloping cavern leading down to the water on descending to the depth of from twenty to forty feet a small rapidly coursing stream of delicious cold water is found well rewarding the thirsty traveller for his trouble sometimes these cavernous openings are simply sloping bricked archways provided with steps the course of these subterranean waterways can always be traced their entire length by uniform mounds of earth piled up at short intervals on the surface each mound represents the excavations from a perpendicular shaft at the bottom of which the crystal water can be seen coursing along toward the city they are merely manholes for the purpose of readily cleaning out the channel of the canart the water is conducted underground chiefly to avoid the waste by evaporation and absorption in surface ditches these canarts are very extensive affairs in many places the long rows of surface mounds are visible stretching for mile after mile across the plain as far as eye can penetrate or until losing themselves among the foothills of some distant mountain chain they were excavated in the palmy days of the persian empire to bring pure mountain streams to the city fountains and to irrigate the thirsty plain it is in the interest of self-preservation that the persians now keep them from falling into decay at noon while seated on a grassy knoll discussing the before-mentioned contents of my pockets i am favoured with a free exhibition of what a physical misunderstanding is like among the persian ryots two companies of katirjis happened to get into an altercation about something, and from words it gradually develops into blows. 
Not blows of the fist, for they know nothing of fisticuffs, but they belabor each other vigorously with their long, thick, donkey persuaders, sticks that are anything but small and willowy. It is an amusing spectacle, and seated on the commanding knoll, nibbling drumsticks and wishbones, I can almost fancy myself a Roman of old, eating peanuts and watching a gladiatorial contest in the amphitheatre. The similitude, however, is not at all striking, for thick as their quarter-staffs, the Persian riots don't punish each other very severely. Whenever one of them works himself up into a fighting pitch, he commences belaboring one of the others on the back, apparently always striking so that the blow produces a maximum of noise with a minimum of punishment. The person thus attacked never ventures to strike back, but retreats under the blows until his assailant's rage becomes spent and he desists. Meanwhile the war of words goes merrily forward. Perchance in a few minutes the person recently attacked suddenly becomes possessed of a certain amount of rage-inspired courage, and he in turn commences a vigorous assault upon somebody, probably his late assailant. This worthy, having become a little cooler, has mysteriously lost his late pugnacity, and now likewise retreats without once attempting to raise his own stick in self-defence. The lower and commercial-class Persians are pretty quarrelsome among themselves, but they quarrel chiefly with their tongues. When they fight without sticks it is an ear-pulling, clothes-tugging, wrestling sort of a scuffle, which continues without greater injury than a torn garment until they become exhausted if pretty evenly matched or until separated by bystanders. They never, never hurt each other unless they are intoxicated, when they sometimes use their short swords. There is no intoxication except in private drinking parties. End of section 40